0: Uh, You may not have heard of this bloke before, but I tell you this, he is an enormously important figure in Chinese history. Uh, He got a lot done during a pretty bloody brief reign. Uh, You know, he established this imperial system of government that sort of ruled China for the bulk of the next 2,000 years after having unified these sort of warring scrapping factions kingdom states whatever you want to call them uh, in the you know in in the era before the the Qin dynasty here um, uh, pretty bloody monumental achievement you have to say you know unifying a an, an entire nation of people it's uh, never mind you know establishing a political system that's going to span the next 2 millennia it's hard enough to keep your bloody bedroom tidy for a week never mind you know setting something in uh, going that's going to last 2000 years you know um, in, in addition to his lasting legacy, uh, you know, conquering and, and politicizing and doing all this other stuff, he also did all sorts of other things while ruling uh, to sort of advance and impro- improve ancient China with roads and canals and infrastructure and legal reforms, all sorts of boring nonsense that we will unt- we will touch upon. Unfortunately, we will, you know we do have to get through the boring stuff as well. But I'll tell you what, the really good stuff comes from when we talk about some of the other th- uh, some of the other things that happened to this bloke and uh, and some of the stuff he was into, because i tell you this, he was a bit of a character. He, he, he was a bit of a character and some of the stuff that happened to him, oh my goodness, he Gonna have to yeah. You, you, I'll, I'll get to it. So let's get stuck in, and we'll have a chat about what this bloke Qin Shi Huang was all about. And uh, before we go any further, I do apologise to anyone who is you know going to take umbrage with my uh, almost certainly incorrect pronunciation of all these Chinese names. I really do my best. I went and you know even looked at like pronunciation video. I oh, didn't just look at them; that wouldn't help too much. I, I listened to them as well. Uh, these pronunciation videos and how to say names like Qin Shi Huang. And uh, but I'm I'm gonna stuff it up, so I apologise in advance. I really have done my best here. Anyway. We are going back a long, 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 long way here. We're going back to the 18th of February, 259 BCE. So, you know, over 2,000 years ago here. And it's then that our mate Chin is born, although... Interestingly, we're not 100% sure on his parentage. His mum was uh, was definitely this lady named Zhao Ji, right, who had been a concubine of a bloke named Lu Bu Wei. But as for his dad, it's not 100% sure who his dad is because officially his dad is King Zhuangxiang of uh, of, of Qin. And the story goes that after after uh, Zhuangxiang here, he, he claps eyes, right, on Lu Bu Wei's concubine Zhao Ji. Uh, he bloody fell in love with her. Fell in love with her straight away, he did. And Lu Bu actually gave her up as a concubine so they could get married. Now, here's the thing. She might have already been pregnant... To Lu Bu Wai when this happened. And so when she gives birth, there's actually a level of uncertainty as to who the father was. And obviously back then they didn't have access to, you know, the, the rigorous and comprehensive paternity tests, for example, that you know you'd see on the, the Maury Povich show. Uh, so this conjecture about whether or he was an, an illegitimate child or not has sort of raged on throughout his, history. But the, the the whole thing may have just been a big hoax, sort of developed years later, you know, so as to Disparage and, and and sort of tear down the, this the reputation of Qin, but you know, honestly, who cares? Anyway, you slice it, he's born on the eighteenth of February, two hundred fifty nine BCE, as the eldest son of Lady Zhao, and uh, officially, at least, this bloke who would uh, would go on to be King Zhuangxiang. Uh, he's not born Qin Shihuang, uh, this young this young bloke. He he gives himself that name years later, as we'll discuss. Uh, so for the for the meantime, we're going to be calling our hero Zhao Zheng. That was the name that he had as a as a younger fellow. Um, now. His daddy eventually becomes the King of Qin, one of these kingdoms that's fighting for supremacy in, in, a, in a period that's very appropriately named the Warring States Period, very inventive name, well done historians, of, of Chinese history. Um, and he's a big fan of Lu Bu Wei and actually makes him Chancellor of... Uh, but doesn't stick around for long because after 3 years on the throne he dies in 247 BCE so uh so the dad of of our mate uh, Zheng here he's dead he's he's off and uh, young Zhao Zheng who is just 13 right becomes the king but obviously he's very young so he has Lu Buwei act as his regent for the time being now Lu Buwei he's a little bit worried however because obviously Lady Zhao she's back to being single and I'll tell you this she's bloody loving it she is loving it she's chatting up blokes left right and center and having a great time she's even going after Lu Bu Way, and he's got no interest in being caught. You know, in getting caught jumping into bed with his boss's mum here, and so he comes up with a plan to keep her busy. Even though you know she used to be his concubine, he's not interested anymore, and he wants to. Well, Bloody, I got, I got to take care of this lady because otherwise, you know, there's going to be trouble if uh, if uh, young Xiao finds out. So he hilariously decides that, and this, this is not a joke. This all happened. He decides that the best way to keep her occupied, to keep her happy. Right, would be to find a bloke who was. um uh, packing some real heat, if you uh, if you know what I mean, and uh, and introduce introduce her to this uh, to this bloke once he found it. So he gets this fellow. He gets this fellow. His name is Lao Ai, uh, who by all accounts, uh, well, yeah, it looks like he, he might have had a real monster on him, to be honest. And Lady Zhao is uh, understandably uh, quite taken with uh, with this gentleman, Lao Ai. Uh, like you know, in, I don't want to get too sort of graphic here, but uh, apparently when we talk about Lao Ai, this bloke, he could use it as an axle for a carriage wheel. Uh, it was it was that bloody big one of his party tricks was to to put a, a, a like an actual carriage wheel on it and wheel it around like he was yeah so you, you you're getting you're getting a sense of, of you know exactly how this was going anyway even with this uh, sort of girthy monstrosity it uh, wouldn't be appropriate for lady zhao who was obviously a noble to be knocking boots with this bloke lao eye so she and Lubu Yi they come up with a plan for a way to get him a little bit closer to it Eunuchs were a very big thing in China at the time, and having a eunuch uh, as a servant obviously wouldn't be a problem for Lady yeah, because there's not going to be any funny business there. So Lü Bu Wai got someone to falsely accuse Lao Ai of a crime that had castration as the punishment. So Lao's go, going, what's going on here, mate? I, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm quite proud of it, you know. I don't really, don't really. I mean, you better, you better bloody bring a chainsaw as well here, because you're going to have a real, you're going to have a real problem otherwise, right? But he doesn't know that Lady Zhao has actually paid off the bloke whose job it was to Castro people. That was a real position back in ancient China. That was a real position. Imagine imagine coming out, you know, home for a, from a day at, at work and doing that job, you know, rather than sort of being balls deep, you'd be deep in balls. Anyway... Um Anyway, the end result is that Lao Ai, he ends up uh, avoiding having his uh, his boys lopped off there, thankfully, and instead he becomes the personal servant of Lady Zhao uh, after getting uh, obviously the Lord Varus treatment and having all his hair plucked out and the beard and eyebrows and whatever else to make him look like a proper eunuch. Now, they obviously got on pretty well because even the fact that he was supposedly a eunuch, uh, Lady Zhao then sprogged out two sons to Lao Ai. And uh, I mean, at this point, you might thinking, you might be thinking, why are we talking about this this bloke so much? Where, you know, where does he come into the story of uh, of young King Sheng here? Well, I'll tell you this: big fella Lao Ai, he gets a little bit too big for his boots, as well as obviously too big for his undies, it seems. And he decides that he wants a bigger slice of the pie. He's going around talking about how he's rooting the king's mum and all that, calling himself Zheng's stepfather and all sorts of nonsense like this. And one day in 238 BCE, he loses the plot completely, and he attempts a coup d'état. He attempts a bloody coup d'état against this against the young king here in the capital, while King Zheng, you know, he's, he's off away somewhere, and he's planning to get rid of Zheng and plant one of his own sons on the throne instead. And this, I will tell you, I will tell you now, it doesn't very it doesn't end very well for Lao Ai. King Zheng hears of what's what's happened, and he dispatches two generals to deal with it. And I will tell you what they bloody well deal with it like a plasticine animal on the hydraulic press channel. They kill all the rebels that lao ai had raised uh, unfortunately for them they don't manage to capture lao ai himself but no worries no worries says the young king go ahead why don't you blokes go ahead and whack a one million copper coin bounty on that bloke's head uh, that should do the trick we'll get him in here uh, quick as winking and sure enough it's not too long before lao ai is caught and dragged before king Zheng. and here Zheng shows the beginning of a pretty bloody mean streak i'll tell you this he has three generations of Lao Ai's family ex- uh, executed, including his two sons who were put into sacks and beaten to death. Even uh, even his, his own mum himself, Lady Zhao, you know, never mind that, you know, she sort of brought him into this world. She's stripped of her titles and locked away for the rest of her life. Um, and Lu Bu Wei doesn't even escape the king's wrath here. He's implicated in the coup and so he's exiled far to the south where he eventually commits suicide rather than, uh, you know, sort of uh, have his, have his fate meet up with him later on. But as for Lao Ai, well, mate, honestly, I don't know if you even want to know what happened to him because it is pretty bloody grisly. I'll tell you that. Uh, Zheng King Zheng, he has Lao Ai ripped apart, right, by five horses. And every single one of the sources that I read through about this whole thing were remarkably specific about the number of horses being five. Now, you'd think four, right? Obviously, two, one for each arm, two, one for each leg, that's four. So, It sort of makes you wonder what the fifth horse was attached to, doesn't it? Anyway, anyway, dealing with this uh, ancient Chinese Ron Jeremy wasn't the only thing that uh, young King Zhen had to deal with, however, because he, sensing the opportune moment is getting on the front foot and leading the kingdom of Qin to victory after victory against the other warring kingdoms. He is doing a bloody great job. Now, there are seven states in total. Calling them kingdoms apparently is incorrect. I don't understand exactly why, but there are seven different states, nations, kingdoms, whatever you want to call them. There is the Chu, the Wei, the Qi, the Yan, the Zhao, the Han, separate, not the same as the Han dynasty that would come later, different thing, Han with a little little sort of, uh, you know, spiky bit above the A there. And of course, the Qin ruled by our mate Zheng. Now, Zheng gets on the front foot, as they say. He conquers the Han in uh, 230 BCE. Again, not the Han dynasty from from years later. And he moves on to the Zhao in 229, which is made uh, easier by the, by the state of Zhao getting uh, hit by an enormous earthquake and then a famine. So a bit of a one-two punch. And then here's the third one as well coming around the corner from Zheng as, uh, as he cleans up in Zhao. Next on the docket was the state of Yan, which he had been preparing to invade for a while, and, and finally, you know, he's, he's looking like he's going to get around to it in 227. Now, remember, we're BCE here, we're before the common era, so we're counting backwards. 227 is closer to us than 230, for example. Now, Yan was a tiny, bloody, puny little kingdom, it was, and it definitely uh, couldn't stand up to a full stale Qin invasion. So as a result, the son of its leader, Crown Prince Dan of Yan, which is a truly excellent name, he says to himself, bugger this for a joke, I know how I can stop this bloody invasion, mate, I will have that bastard Zing assassinated, no worries, and that'll stop those uh, those chin buggers in their tracks. So Dan of Yan, he gets two blokes named Jin Ke and Qin and, and Wu Yang, right? And he hatches his plan with the aid of a disgruntled Chin general, Fan Wu Ji. And I've called this guy disgruntled, and I'm immediately realising that probably isn't the most accurate adjective to use in this situation. He's a fair bit more than disgruntled, as, as you'll understand in a minute. Fan Wu had turned traitor against the Chin, not a particularly, you know, wise move, uh, you know, but hindsight is twenty twenty here, because he's now got a price in his head of a, th- a thousand gold coins after having, you know, sort of done the old Benedict Arnold here against the, uh, against the Chin. So here is the plan that Dan of Yan puts together, if you'll believe it. In order to gain access to King Zhang, Jin Qi is going to go to him with the head of Fan Wuji so as to collect the bounty. Like a bloody Iron Age Boba Fett, he's going to get this the, the head of this bloke, uh, Fan Wuji, with his bounty on, right? And, and he's, going to, he's going to go and present it to the king and, and, and that way get an audience with him and from there try to kill him. The only problem is that getting the head, you know, obviously he needs to get the head of Fan Wu ji as at, at this stage it is very firmly attached to the body of Fan Wu Gee, which is a bit of a problem. But this this needs to be unbelievable. Fan Wu ji says, no worries, fellas, you can just go ahead and lop that off. I don't need it. I, I, I'm not really using it. I don't need it all that much. You can go ahead and chop me head off, take it along with the thing, get that king dead, don't even worry about it. he had such a grudge against the chin after having betrayed them, after, you know, after turning trader. He hated the chin so much. Imagine being so disgruntled. That you're happy to commit bloody suicide just to help someone you know, assassinate a bloke you don't like. I mean, look, I understand having a vendetta against someone. I, I certainly do. When I was about five years old, Gene Keogh took a massive chip out of a, that I've been saving out of a bag that I, you know, that I, that I was eating, and I was severely disgruntled. I'll tell you though, I've never forgiven Gene. I've, I've, I was severely disgruntled when he took this massive big chip. I was saving it to last. I was looking forward to eating it, and he just snatched it out of the bag. He, I, I was very, very, I was very, I was very disgruntled. I would say, but in the intervening twenty-five years. I have become at least slightly re-gruntled, you know, and I now live in a state of general gruntledness. But being so disgruntled that you're letting people chop your you chop your head off—that is—I think that's less gruntled than I've I've ever been in my entire life. I think it's fair to say. Anyway, the deed is done, and Fan Woo-ji's head is you know chopped off, presumably with a big smile. He's can't believe he's lucky; he's, he's just happy to be there. Um, and uh, after that, uh, Jin Qi and Qin Wu Yang they head off to seek an audience with King Zheng, uh, and you know they've got. Fan Wuji's head is a gift for him they are given, you know, pretty bloody speedy access to the king who's very keen to see what's going on. Now they've wrapped it up in a map of the area that Jing is hoping to capture, a very nice touch, very uh, sort of fertile farmland area that was owned by the by the, the the Yan there and you know, obviously pretty nice touch to to you know, wrap the head of this this bloke in 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 something that the the king was after there. Um, and before long, they're they're granted an audience. Now, Jin Ki and uh, Qin Wu Yang, they head into the King's Chamber, and all of a sudden, Qin Wu Yang, he starts bricking it. He's paralysed with fear. He's so nervous. He's over, He realises what they're about to do, and he's, he's, he's oh, mate, I'll tell you what, he's crapping his dacks with fear. He can't believe it. Now, Jin Ki has to make some pretty quick persu- persuasion checks here, but he's basically he just, he goes with a line of, please excuse my." Sp- Please excuse my simple friend. Please excuse my simple friend. He's never seen such royal majesty before. He's 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 awestruck in your in your presence, you know? Um, now, despite sounding like something out of a very bad action film, it actually works, and Jing Ki is allowed to present King Zheng with this head. Now. When the map unrolls, it reveals that there is more than a head waiting inside this little package. However, Dan of Yan had planted a poisoned, razor-sharp dagger in there, and Jing Key grabs it quick-smart. He grabs it quick as lightning as anything, and he lunges at the king. But Jing is too quick, and he ducks away, and so the dagger only rips through his sleeve. Now, so far, so good. We've got a pretty standard, serious, historical moment and assassination attempt that, you know, it would, would make for a very dramatic piece of cinema, for example. You can imagine the uh, the gravitas of the situation, this mighty king having this young, uh, this assassin leap at his throat like this. But unfortunately, that's where it ends, because the rest of it uh, honestly sounds like it would have been an appropriate scene in an Austin Powers film. Check out what happens as this assassination attempt unrolls. What happens next? Ridiculous. The king, King Zheng, he has a sword on his belt, but it is meant, basically it's a ceremonial sword, meant for only for ceremony, and it is really, really long. It is so long that he can't get it out of his sheath to defend himself. On top of that, none of the other people in the room were armed. Imagine this, you're the king and you don't have any armed guards in the room with you. What are you doing, mate? I mean, come on, get your head in the game. You've got a lift here, mate. But they, and so they they all these people are the rest of the people in the room they can't stop Jing Qi from, from chasing Zheng around the room. Zheng ends up running in circles around a pillar trying to get away from Jing have you seen that that what is it? is it a duck chasing a, a dog or something or a, a, a rabbit or something it's chasing it around this sort of this, this tree trying to get, get around like that I just imagine these two idiots running around a circle playing ring around the Rosies here while Jing Qi's trying to you know get him with a trying a very deadly game of tag around this around the size of this pillar here. it's absolutely ridiculous. but finally, one of the blokes who's there, a doctor, comes to his senses and chucks his medicine bag at Jin knocking him off balance. Now, Jean cannot draw this bloody sword. He cannot get it out of its sheath you know, until he finally listens to what the people are yelling at him and he realizes how he needs to do it. He needs to reach over the back, witcher style, and pull it out from over his shoulder. Now, Zheng finally gets the sword out, and he gives Zheng Ki a mighty chop on the leg, and he falls to the ground. Now, Zheng Ki desperately chucks the dagger at Zheng, but he misses, and Zheng bears down on him and fills him with more holes and a bloody sieve, mate. Uh, uh, Qin Wu Yang, meanwhile, has tried to flee, but he's caught and ultimately killed by the guards, and so Zheng survives his first assassination attempt. A, you know, A real coming of age for any young king or any young emperor there. Uh, he manages to, <laughs> to survive this attempt, but... Uh, Oh, you did. Hear, you did hear me mention that it was his first. And uh, oh yes, revered listener, there were uh, there are a number of others as well, which we will get to in due course. But that's the ending key. He gets obviously, as I say, he gets rather. He leaves with a few more holes than he uh, than he entered with. I think it's fair to say he's you know a little bit more perforated after this whole experience. And uh, as for the state of Yan, after this, Zheng just went right ahead and invaded it, completely, completely crushed it into the dirt. And the king of Yan, a bloke named, uh, named Xi, he even tried to appease Zheng there by having poor old Dan of Yan put to death. Imagine that, he puts his own son to death in order to try to, you know, forestall this invading army. But uh, our merciless friend Zheng didn't care at all, didn't care at all. And Yan was utterly annihilated by 222 BCE. So, after having dealt with the yin, King Zheng is uh, still getting on with the business of conquering, obviously. He moves on now to the Wei and the Chu. Now, Wei falls when he marches 600,000 troops towards the capital, besieges it, simple as anything, and then redirects the flow of a nearby river to completely flood the city, which killed about 100,000 people altogether. Absolutely brutal. But, look, you know... It, it, it doesn't doesn't really matter how he got it done. He got it done, and uh, ultimately the kingdom of, uh, of Wei or the state of Wei falls. Chu, on the other hand, was a little bit more difficult. Now, at this stage, one of Zheng's generals, Wang Jian, he insists that they need 600,000 soldiers for to, to take over Chu as well, right? But Zheng goes, mate, you need to get it done with two hundred thousand. You know, it's the end of the quarter. We're all feeling the pinch. We've got to, really got to tighten the belts. You know, we got we got to sort of you know just knuckle under. It's, it's crunch time. We got to we got to get it done here with a, you know a little less than we'd like. Now Wang Zhang goes ahead and he resigns over this. He's not going to be treated like a, you're not going to be treated like an idiot. And Zheng he, well he goes all right. Well, you know whatever. Don't even worry about it. And he marches on anyway. And he gets pummeled into the dirt by the Chu. Oops. Yep. Didn't see that one coming. Two hundred thousand men not enough to uh, to capture the kingdom of the Chu. So after this, Zhengi goes back to Wang Jian and he says, uh, look, look, sorry about that, my old mate. Turns out you were right. Did need all them troops. After all, you uh, you did. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You should have, should have listened to you there. And now not giving him the old I told you so must have been the hardest thing to resist. But Wang Jian is gracious and he accepts the king's offer to come back and lead the troops again. This time, all 600,000 of them. And by 223 BCE, Chu has also fallen. Good on you, old mate Wang Jian. Get the job done. Bloody legend. Now... At some point during all this, this whole thing, I actually couldn't find the exact date. I, I'm, I'm interested to know exactly when it was, but I, I couldn't find exactly, you know, in, in which year this took place. But the, uh, there is now another, there's another assassination attempt on the docket here for Zheng. He has to deal with another assassination attempt. You know, he's getting, he's getting a bit sick of them by this stage, obviously. This time, is it was at the hands uh, of a different bloke, obviously. It wasn't well, it, wasn't the, it wasn't a spooky spectral ghost coming from beyond the grave with, uh, you know, trying to get him from uh, that note. It was a new bloke named Gao Zhanli who was a friend of Jin Key and wanted to avenge his death. Obviously, Jin Key, the first assassin who died. Now, again, mate, I understand holding grudges and I understand seeking vengeance. I'm still plotting my retribution for Gene Ko and he's thievery of my chip. But trying to murder the most powerful bloke this side of the Silk Road doesn't seem to be the smartest move, honestly, here. Anyway, He's dead set on getting it done, is, uh, is our mate Gao Jianli uh, here, Jianli. So he figures out how, that he, how he can gain access to the king. As it happens, he's a very, very talented loot player, you know, ancient Chinese bloody Jimi Hendrix over here. And uh, King Zhen is a big, big fan of music. He loves, he loves a tune. He does. So Gao Jianli, he goes around performing and playing for people until the king hears about him, hears about his prowess, and so invites him to come and play for him personally. Now Gao Jianli, he goes along, determined to find a way to assassinate Zheng, but... Oh no! Bloody disaster! He is recognised once he turns up for this performance, this recital. Before he goes in to see the king, he is recognised by one of Jing's men as a friend of Jin Qi. Gao Jianli had been—he'd been in been incognito, been using a fake name and all that sort of stuff. He'd been incognito until then, trying to avoid all the you know the reprisals of of Jing Qi's friends and family the, 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 that they saw, all saw, sort of suffered after the last time there. But he's—he's he's found out. He's found out. He's, he's revealed as a friend of Jin Qi. Now, you know, never let it be said. Uh, that King Zheng is not a wise and merciful ruler. Very, very wise, very, very merciful. And even after finding out who Gao Zhenli is, he still wants to hear him play his music. He still wants to give him a chance. And so as something of a compromise, therefore, and a very, very reasonable compromise it was too, Zheng only had Gao Zhenli's eyes ripped out of his head, so as to blind him. So very, very reasonable indeed, you have to say. Now I didn't find any first-hand evidence of this. It is fair to assume that Gao Jianli probably wasn't a huge fan of this development, but all the same, he played the lute for the king, and uh, and Jing bloody loves it. He bloody loves it. He's that good at, at plucking away on those strings and he goes, you know what? You can stick around for a while because I do like you. I love the way you uh, you play that lute. So uh, you know, you're, I'm, I'm all about it. So he ends up having Gao Jianli stick around for quite a while, relaxing his suspicions of the bloke as uh, you know as he sort of earned his trust. You know, playing playing for the king there. And uh, this was a near, very nearly fatal mistake because Gao Li had not given up on his quest to assassinate the king and, and he'd started to smuggle bits of lead into his loot, turning it into this, you know, big, heavy bludgeoning weapon, basically. Once he's ready and his loot is sort of more than, more of a club than a music instrument, uh, Gao Li plays for King Zheng, getting as close as possible while doing so. He's, you know, really getting up. his girl in a great time before finally spinning his loot around and taking a huge swing at Zen with Zheng with his mighty big, massive weighted loot and of course he misses by miles. In case you forgot, he was blind. He couldn't see and yeah, not, didn't even come close. Twist, twist ending. You're never going to guess how this one ends here. Gao Zhongli was uh, very messily ex- executed for this, and King Zheng uh, then became even more concerned for his personal security, and so there were no more assassination attempts for a while after this, but we're not finished with them just yet. Ready to pop the question? As all the wars of uh, unif- unification that Zheng is fighting, you know, they'll they rage on, they'll crack on throughout uh, throughout this whole this whole sort of period. And, and uh, the very last state to fall was the Qi in 221 BCE. And I'll tell you this, they hardly even put up a fight, honestly. With the fall of Qi, there was nothing left for Zheng to conquer. He'd captured every last scrap of territory that used to be part of the old Kingdom of Zhao. And uh, as a result, he decides, he's, he, you know, sits down and to think about it, and he decides that he's had enough of kingship. He has now decided that he is in the empire business, and he becomes the first ever emperor in Chinese history. And as a result of this, Yang Zheng, he, uh, he actually renames himself. He renames himself Qin Shi Huangdi, which means first emperor of the Qin. Now, taken more literally, Huangdi actually means shining or splendid, uh, so Huang means shining or splendid, and Di was an old high god. Uh, he actually invented this title, sort of combining terms with Chinese myth- from uh, Chinese mythology, and it went on. Check this out. It went on to be used by Chinese emperors, Huang Di. you went on to be used by Chinese emperors right up until the final abolition of the imperial government, and you're never going to believe when that took place. That was in 1911 over 2000 years people were using this title huangdi invented by this bloke uh, yeah, Qin ch'i right there so he's got it done with this you know establishing this 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 essentially this 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 enormously powerful office political office there and he, he got it done after after reunifying all of these uh, these warring factions and, and and states and whatever else anyway his name did get shortened a little bit to what we know it is today as, as Qin Shi Huang by uh, by historians, of the, uh, you know, sort of historians from back then as well. And that's how we know him today, as I say. Uh, back then, however, he, uh, he, he this wasn't the only name he had. He had a whole bunch of names. He called himself the Immortal after a while, which uh, sort of, I don't want to ruin the ending of the, of the podcast here today, but ultimately was unfortunately false. And uh, it was it, it was forbidden for anyone to call him Zheng anymore. He made it, 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 it was just taboo to, to use his old name that he'd used when he was a king. And... Check this out. This is the most ridiculous thing. He made it illegal for anyone other than himself to use the f- a first person pronoun. You couldn't say I or me anymore. The only person who was allowed to say the words I or me in Chinese, obviously, was this bloke Qin Shi Huang. He was the only. He- he'd sort of cordoned off I and me, the first person pronouns, just for himself to use, and everyone else had to use uh, well something different. As far as I could understand it. This actually meant that people had to start using a different word when wanting to use a first-person pronoun. And even today, the word that they use, "woe," that it actually replaced "gen," the word that he took for himself. So they still use this word "woe" that, that after you know, two thousand years ago, didn't mean anything, right? They had to make up a new first-person pronoun because of, of, of Chin taking the other one for himself. It, it's kind of like it, it'd be, it's kind of like Queen Elizabeth coming out and saying. All right, here. Listen, you bloody filthy peasants. Only I can say the word "I" now. All of you lot, you've got to start saying "J" instead. It's it. It makes no sense whatsoever. But that is the way that it went, and all sounds a bit bonkers. And it, I mean, for the good reason, it just definitely is bonkers. And the good news, the good news is here, my friends. The good news is there is plenty more bonkers stuff coming down the line. Here, plenty, plenty more bonkers stuff coming your way. But for now, however. We got to wait the history, the historical Brussels sprouts of uh, of Qin Shi Huang's story, and uh, we're going to get through some of the boring stuff here. Take a quick break. Talk about, I don't know, just boring history stuff for a while before we cut. Co- you know, we cover off what Qin did once he secured his position as emperor. Because I tell you this, he, di- he in fairness, he definitely did get a lot done in in a pretty short period. China, at the time that he took the throne, the imperial throne, he- it was feudal, had a feudal system of government. But not anymore, says Qin. He abolishes it. He abolishes feudalism and he chops up all of the states and kingdoms that he'd conquered into new administrative regions, ignoring previous hereditary entitlements, national alliances, whatever else. He, 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 he organized it the way that he wanted to. China was very, very heavily regionalized at this point. These divisions did a lot of work to undo this and focus everyone on belonging to one empire, one people. He standardized a bunch of stuff throughout the entire empire, significantly language, language and writing, so as to do away with regional dialects and scripts. And, uh, you know, he tried to standardize that throughout his entire realm there and on top of that weights and measures currency even stuff like the length of cart axles so road widths could be you know consistent throughout the entire empire he even if you, this this is again you know you sort of think okay all that makes sense that's very sensible good on you you're good on your chin you know you're making some good decisions here but he always has to do, just go the one or two steps further to just get slightly into the realm of the insane here because he even standardized the lengths of the hats that people would wear Utterly ridiculous, but apparently back then you had to wear a hat that was exactly fifteen centimeters long. That was the that was the standard hat length back then. Anyway, I don't know. On top of all this, on top of all this, the, the reforms, political and social and whatever else that he did. On top of all of that, he put in some real hard yakka into public work projects. Mate, it was honestly, he was like a bloody Animal Crossing mayor. He's getting out there, getting it done. He connected two of the major rivers running through China, the Xiang and the Li Jiang, right, with a canal that was 34 kilometres in length. It's called the Lingku Canal, and it is still there today. It connects the Yangtze and the Pearl River basins, an enormously advanced feat of engineering, especially back in those days. And it's still used today. It's this sort of allows you to take this enormous inland route that's nearly 2,000 kilometres long, all the way from Hong Kong up to Beijing. It's quite amazing. And, uh, you know, we, we can put the canal aside at one moment because while it's impressive, certainly doesn't come anywhere close to his second major uh, major achievement. Uh, you may have heard of this little engineering project that he kicked off. Uh, it, uh, it wasn't known by this back then, but today it's known as the Great Wall of China. Back then, obviously, wasn't really great, but the mediocre wall of China doesn't really have the same ring to it. Um, now, in fairness, it's not the wall that stands there today, most of which were, you know, was built after the 14th century. But Qin was the first to start putting up an enormous, unbroken wall to prevent barbarian attacks and invasions from the north. All the states had sort of little, scrappy bits of defenses facing north there, like that. But Qin said, "Nah, bugger that. We need one big, long, enormous bastion from from you know from one end to the other to prevent people from getting in." And that's what he did. So quite, quite again, quite an astonishing achievement, especially you know talking 2,000 years ago. So on top of all this, politically, he was a proponent of Chinese legalism, which I am not Intelligent enough to understand, because honest, to be very honest with you, there is no simple English Wikipedia page on it. seemed to have a very heavy focus on law and order, which makes sense given its name. It you know exactly what it says on the tin, I would imagine. Um, And uh, you won't be surprised to learn that as a proponent of legalism, he wasn't a huge fan of dissent. He even went so far as uh, uh, to to burn books of all kinds, principally political and historical books that could be used to compare him against other rulers. And uh, I have to say, you know, on on quite a serious level, I'm definitely not joking here. Definitely, definitely not a fan of this. Really, really not a fan of this. Burning books has to be one of the most horrific and ignorant things. One of the most historically damaging actions a person can do. There is absolutely no justification for burning books of any kind, and I, I, I completely stand against it in any form. Anyway. that that, look we've had enough we've had enough of this boring nonsense let's get back to all the idiotic stuff all the crazy stuff because you know obviously that that's what people tune in for right that's what people tune in for we've eaten the brussels sprouts time for a big scoop of chocolate ice cream so let's kick things off with another assassination attempt a very very this one potentially no not better than the other ones because honestly you know i still can't get the i still can't get this guy trying to pull the sword out while running around a pillar with another bloke slashing at him with a knife i mean that's you know that that's a hard one to top But uh, another bloke came close, another bloke came close in 218 BCE, an aristocrat from the former state of Han, this bloke named Zhang Liang, right, he sold everything he owned, and he hired an assassin to kill Qin. This assassin was this huge, big, muscly bloke, huge, big, you know, sort of circus performer strongman he was, and for some reason, Zhang Liang decided that the best weapon for him to use to kill the emperor was, of all things, a massive metal cone, Zhang Liang had this cone made. It weighed almost 100 kilograms when it was finished. Absolutely ridiculous. I mean, what? Just use a sword, mate. Use Use a bloody big rock. Why does it need to be a cone? I don't know what's going on here. Anyway, he and the assassin, armed with you know, again, what was perhaps the most impractical assassination weapon in history, uh, laid in ambush, waiting for Qin. Qin was on his way over a mountain in a carriage, or more specifically, in a convoy of carriages. Zhang Liang and his mate, they're hiding there in the bushes and they're you know peeking out, having a look. Oh, here comes that convoy, um, and they, they've spotted the richest and the most finely decorated carriage in the entire convoy. They go, that's where he is. That, that's that's obviously you know he's in that's that's the that's the emperor the imperial carriage. That's where he's hiding. We got to we got to take that one out. So when the uh, when this deck richly decorated carriage goes past the assassin jumps up up chucks this massive cone at the carriage in question and you know just smashes it to bits now of course of course, this assassination attempt is unsuccessful. Our boy Qin, he's no fool. He wasn't in the richly decorated carriage, was he? No, no, no. It was a decoy. He was safe and sound in another one. And so the third and final assassination attempt was unsuccessful. Zhang Liang actually, uh, he got away with it too. He went on to do all sorts of stuff to kick off the Han dynasty, but you know that's another story. So three from three, he's done pretty well, has our mate Chin there. He's got out of it. But again, I mean... If you're going to assassinate an emperor, I mean, I, you know, I definitely don't condone this kind of behavior. I definitely don't condone any kind of assassination. I mean, not not just of emperors, of anyone. Don't assa- just talk, use your words. Use your words. And but you know, if you can't use your words, definitely don't use a 100 kilogram metal cone to try to kill. I mean, don't kill someone in the first place. But if you if you have to, don't. But if you really do have to, don't use it. Don't use a hundred kilo. What are you thinking? Don't use a don't use a hundred kilogram metal, metal cone. Come on. Anyway, anyway. Perhaps due to all these, you know, assassination attempts, Chin was actually he, he was completely terrified of dying. He had he he just could not come to terms with his own mortality. And, and as he as he sort of got on later in years, you know, even after all the good work he did with conquering and reforming and all that stuff, he stuff, he started sort of get a bit, you know he started going a little going a little bit bonkers there at the end there. As he got into his forties he started to put some very serious time and effort into finding the fabled elixir of life. Now, obviously, you know, Nicholas Flamel wasn't around back then, so he had to sort of go asking in other areas, most of which, as you would expect, just absolutely wacko. He visited a place called Jifu Island, which was said to have the mountain of immortality on it. He actually went there three times and left inscriptions on the stones there. On his second visit in 218 BC, he left the inscription, arrived at Fu and carved the stone. So, you know, very, very. A matter of few words, it has to be said. But on his third visit in two hundred and ten B.C.E., three or oh, eight years later, I should say, uh, he obviously had a very exciting time indeed, he, and left a, a very detailed record of the stuff that he got up to on this island. And it says, came to Fu, saw an enormous stone, and shot one fish. So that is the you know highfalutin lifestyle of of the ancient Chinese emperor shooting a single fish and looking at big rocks. Um, on top of this, he also sent his court sorcerer. Bloody, uh, that is just, Oh, I mean, if I I, I, I wish I had, I wish I had a personal sorcerer to go and do my bidding, bloody hell. Anyway, he sent off his court sorcerer, a bloke named Shu Fu, uh, off on a mission across the seas uh, to find, again, this uh, the, the Mountain of Immortality, this massive big mountain, Mount, Mount Pengli, I think its name was. Um, uh, now, he wasn't sent alone. Oh, no, no, no. He was sent on ships with 3,000 virgin boys and girls, which... I don't know how they were going to aid him in finding this mythical mountain, but that is the, that, that's the line that he took. So, yes, it, I presented to you without comment, I suppose. So, as I say, they're off looking for this mountain, Mount Penglai, a mythical mountain where, you know, all the the buildings are gold and platinum, the jewels grow on trees, and, the, and, and the, you know, the fruit there grants you immortalities and cures disease, whatever else. Now, we don't know conclusively if Zhu Fu ever found Mount Penglai. So he never actually returned, Uh he may have just sailed, continued sailing east until he hit Japan, and and sort of you know settled down there with his massive squad of virgins and, and colonized the place. We we really don't know, but uh, what we do know, what we do know, is that all of Chin's attempts to find immortality were ultimately completely unsuccessful uh, because he died. I mean, shocking. I know. Sorry to sorry to kind of ruin the ending there, but yeah, he died. Uh, in fact, it's actually interesting because his his search for immortality may have been what ultimately led to his uh, led to his death. He was reported. To have been taking mercury pills, thinking that they'd ex- extend his lifespan. Oops. And as a result, Emperor Qin Shi Huang fell seriously ill while on a tour of Eastern China, and finally died on the tenth of, no- uh, of September, two hundred and ten BCE, at the age of just forty-nine. However, however, after having died, his corpse was still a two-month journey away from the imperial capital. So the story doesn't end here. The imperial capital, Xianyang uh is, is, as I say, two months journey away, and his advisors realize that they might have a bit of a problem on their hands because if people find out that the emperor was dead, there might be this might be an uprising, might be a common uprising or you know a coup or a, an attempt of, of a, who knows what? You never can tell what these filthy low-born peasants can you know never, never can tell what they're going to do, can you? And as a result, Qin's prime minister, Li Si he decides to hide news of Qin's death. And as was so often the case during Qin's life, Even after death, a ridiculous pantomime surrounded him as he made his way back to the capital. Li Si only told a very, very few number, a very small number of people the truth about the Emperor dying, and he loaded the corpse up into the, into this carriage and set off back to Shenyang with everyone in tow. Nothing going on here, boys. Don't even worry about it. We're all fine. We're just going to get the Emperor back home. However, he ordered two wagons of rotting fish to be drawn alongside the Imperial wagon, one in front, one behind, to mask the smell of his decomposing corpse. Certainly nothing suspicious about that, you wouldn't think. Nothing fishy. Well, actually... A lot fishy about that, but, you know, nothing suspicious about that. No worries. Meanwhile, they brought food and drink and fresh clothes to the, quote-unquote, emperor throughout the entire journey and then relayed messages from, again, quote-unquote, the emperor to the rest of the entourage. You know, he just didn't come out and say hello to anyone, which maybe wasn't particularly unusual for for Chin there. But uh, they managed to hide the fact that he was dead, all the way until they made it back to Shenyang. They then announced the death of the uh, the emperor, who was eventually succeeded by his 18th son, Qin shi He had a lot of kids. He had about 50 kids through, you know, from all his concubines and wives and whatever he had. He had, he, he was a very, very busy bloke by the sound of things. Um, and his 18th son became the second emperor. He was supposed to be succeeded by his first son, Fusu, but Li Si, who didn't like Fusu, check this out, forged an edict from Qin Shi Huang, ordering his son, Fusu, to kill himself. And bizarrely, he did. My dad had a hard enough time getting me to polish my shoes before going to school. Never mind bloody offing myself. But Li Shi Li managed to trick the heir apparent to the throne. Right, the heir apparent to kill himself because his dad told him to. I mean, honour thy father and thy mother by all means. But there is a line. There is a line. Anyway, the story of the next emperor, Qin er Shi. It's another one entirely. And it's not a particularly happy one. I'll tell you this: within a few short years, unfortunately, the empire that he's had built was crumbling. The Qin dynasty was not in safe hands, and uh, y- y- you know it gave way. It fell apart. It gave way to the Han dynasty that kicked itself kicked off in you know in, in a very in a very you know only about three years essentially after the death of uh, of uh, Qin Shi Huang. There was uh, was was the Qin dynasty completely completely over more or less. Anyway, imperial China was on its way. It was on its way. And even after the collapse of this short-lived, short-lived Qin dynasty, the, you know, as I say, the famous Han dynasty rose to power and ruled for over four hundred years. And from there, imperial China ticked over and over and over for over two thousand years—a very, very long time. A huge achievement that uh, you know to be established here by this one bloke, Qin Shi Huang. Before we finish. Before we finish for today, there's one last thing we need to cover, and you may already know what it is here, because obviously I've very, I've, I've, I've very deliberately left it out until we're going to talk about it right at the end. We need to cover something that happened in 1974 when a group of Chinese farmers were digging a well in in, in the back country of China, somewhere in this, in central China. They were digging this well, and they came across, after, after digging deep enough, they came across an enormous, enormous underground necropolis. Filled with thousands and thousands of life-sized statues of soldiers, you've probably heard of the Terracotta Army. It was discovered in 1974. This mausoleum had remained undisturbed for centuries and centuries, and uh, these thousands and thousands of statues had been had hadn't been seen or touched for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years perhaps. Eight thousand soldiers, six hundred horses, hundred chariots, all made all all, all statues, of course. Um, on top of that, you know, crossbows and traps and, and, and jewels and weapons and all sorts of things that were, d- were designed to, to keep the place secure. And you, I'm, I'm, you sh- I'm sure you've heard of it. You've seen probably pictures of these intricately detailed statues, all of which were originally painted in these garish bright colours. And this army was armed, as I say, weapons. 40,000 weapons were buried with them uh, back then as well. This whole thing, staggeringly huge project. And you'll never guess who, behind- well, Actually, you probably will guess who, were behind it, who was behind it all. Of course, it's actually very—it's pretty bloody obvious who was behind it all. Apparently, when he first became king at the age of 13, Qin Shui Huang, or King Zheng as he was known back then, uh, ordered the construction of this mausoleum, and it wasn't finished until after he died. It was, in, it, was, it was under construction for 38 years. 38 years it took to build. And the whole thing, it covers more than 3,000 square metres. It is bloody huge. He definitely didn't muck about, I can tell you that. In any case... All of these amazing achievements, all of these incredible things that that Qin Shi Huang did here, uniting an empire, building canals and walls, reforming an entire nation's politics, in addition to obviously all the the wacko stuff, uh, that's what makes up his legacy today. Qin Shi Huang went from the king of one of many squabbling nations to one of the most influential people in Chinese history. And now he's lying there surrounded by his thousands of terracotta soldiers to protect him from evil spirits, leaving us only today to marvel at what he achieved. And... and giggle at it I guess as well yes we're we're, we're definitely going to have a giggle or two let's be honest but that's it that's all she wrote today sports fans that is the story of Qin Shi Huang the first Chinese emperor and uh Thank you for sticking through it. Thanks for sticking with me for another episode of half Hour History. It certainly has been a pleasure to have you along. And uh, a special welcome goes out to all the people who have emailed me in the last week or so saying they've just discovered half Hour History and they're enjoying it, or, you know, even the ones who said they hated it. I mean, I don't know why you wasted your time emailing me, but I appreciate the feedback all the same. But welcome. Welcome. By all means, welcome. It's great to have you as part of the half Hour History family. Do hope you stick around for a couple more, more episodes. And a very special thank you to all the old listeners who are still sticking with it after all these, uh, you know, we're coming up on a year, which I'm very excited about, only two months away until uh, you know, half Hour History turns one year old, so... Very, very exciting time for me, and, and I really do appreciate all the support and the positivity that gets sent my way. And, of course, the money, the money. Oh, my goodness. Thank you to everyone supporting and kicking uh, kicking in on Patreon. You can do the same thing. If you head to halfhourshistory.net, you can chuck me a couple of bucks. There's no obligation to whatsoever, and there are no benefits to doing so other than, you know warm fuzzy feeling you're lining my wallet there but uh, I I really do appreciate I can't really properly say how much it means to me to have people at my back like this so thank you so very very much um also has all the old episodes you can go there in a contact form if you want to get in touch with me send me an email via that and uh, I'm always very happy to hear from people and I'm still sending out stickers of course you can uh, get in touch with me send your address and I'll send you through some stickers free of charge not a worry at all that's that i think we close close the show out uh, for today as usual with a question posed on reddit here and uh, obviously we've talked uh, a fair bit about china chinese history the uh, indefatigability the, the might of the chinese empire over the millennia and so with that in mind a very good question asked by reddit historian hamza boy hamza boy asks if china is so fragile then how did the country last for so many years